So John chapter 8, we're going to start with verse 12. And let's read. Then Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. The Pharisees therefore said to him, You bear witness of yourself, your witness is not true. Jesus answered and said to them, Even if I bear witness of myself, my witness is true, for I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from and where I am going. You judge according to the flesh, where I judge no one. And yet, if I do judge, my judgment is true, for I am not alone, but I am with the Father who sent me. It is also written in your law that the testimony of two men is true. I am one who bears witness of myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness of me. Then they said to him, Where is your father? Jesus answered, You know neither me nor my father. If you had known me, you would have also known my father also. These words Jesus spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, and no one laid hands on him, for his hour had not yet come. Then Jesus said to them again, I am going away, and you will seek me and will die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. So the Jews said, Will he kill himself? Because he says, Where I go, you cannot come. And he said to them, You are from beneath, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins. For if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Then they said to him, Who are you? And Jesus said to them, Just what I have been saying to you from the beginning. I have many things to say and to judge concerning you, but he who sent me is true, and I speak to the world those things which I heard from him. And they did not understand that he spoke to them of the Father. Then Jesus said to them, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing of myself. But as my Father taught me, I speak these things. And he who sent me is with me. The Father has not left me alone, for I always do those things that please him. As he spoke these words, many believed in him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for what it has for us. And Lord, we do look forward to what you want to speak to our hearts tonight. The truth that you have for us, but not only just your truth, Father, but your truth applied So we pray, yes, that you grant to us knowledge, but more importantly, Lord, we pray for wisdom from that. So Lord, speak to our hearts, speak to our minds. Lord, we uh, just enjoy the fellowship that we have with you, and we pray that through the power of your Holy Spirit, you would teach us tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. So we saw last week this scene of the woman caught in the very act of adultery, and we talked about that how it was a whole setup, it was a scam, it was a sting operation set up by the Pharisees in order to try to catch Jesus, to try to get him into a situation where there was no answer. Because he said to them, the law says that we must stone her, what do you say? And so if he said, as we talked last week, stone her, then maybe he ran the risk of not showing compassion and not 
those very people that he liked to hang out with, sinners, uh, would maybe be drawn to him as much because of that answer. And if he said, don't stone her, then he's not going according to the law. So Jesus gives a brilliant answer, the only right answer to the question, you who is without sin, throw the first stone. So we see over time, short amount of time, each one of them drops their rocks and they, and they leave because they've been convicted of their sin. And we talked about, you know, Jesus stooped down on the ground to write something, and we don't know what that something was. It could have been any number of things. It could have been the sins that they have committed. You know, so the first time he stoops down, he writes the names of all those guys holding rocks. The next time he stoops down, maybe he writes their sin next to their name. Maybe he writes the name of their girlfriends. We don't know. We're going to get to ask the Lord when we get to heaven, what did you write? And, you know, he'll share that with us and we'll be blown away. Probably isn't anything we've ever thought of, you know. But whatever it was, they were convicted by it. And so the woman uh, that was caught in adultery, she's still there on the ground. These religious leaders have dropped their rocks and left. Jesus said, Woman, who is left to condemn you? And she said, no one. And he said, neither do I condemn you. Go your way and sin no more. But if you look at that phrase, sin no more, it's basically be free to sin no more. Because of relationship with me, we, you have the freedom to not sin any longer. Because I can empower you to overcome that. So that's all wrapped up in that one little phrase. And we can take encouragement from that, right? Uh, How many sinners do we have here tonight? That's what I thought. Uh, If there's anyone that didn't raise their hand, I would like to talk with you, you know, after the service. (laughs) Seriously. (laughs) But we're all sinners. We know that. Saved by grace. Saved by the blood of Jesus Christ and what He did for us on the cross. So this woman will experience that as well. But for now, He's encouraging her and saying, go and sin no more. Go. You are free to sin no more. So then she leaves as well. And this challenge that Jesus had, these religious leaders that came to him, I think the best terminology for it is he pretty much schooled them, didn't he? He schooled them in what their theology and their doctrine and their law was saying, and he he told them what was what. So what was Jesus doing, though, before he was so rudely interrupted by these guys? We see at the beginning of chapter 8, Verse 2 says, Now early in the morning he came again to the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. So he's been teaching the people, and then this scene takes place, and then we find ourselves in the, the text where we are tonight in verse 12. Then Jesus spoke to them again, saying... So he's teaching once again. He's had the opportunity to school these guys, and it was a teaching opportunity for them and those that were there as well. But now he's going to continue with teaching there's the crowd is probably made up of any number of people people that were followers of Jesus I'm sure his disciples were there there were probably others that were there that were curious to find out what Jesus was teaching he was in the the temple area so that would have drawn people anyway just to curiosity and there were probably still some religious leaders around because they seemed to always be around just to try to catch him in something. So he's teaching in the temple. 
What's he doing? You know, right now, he's just continuing what he's been doing to, to teach. He's conversing with the ones that have been gathered there after this incident with a woman caught in adultery. And what Jesus is going to focus on in this teaching, we see as we read through it, is his relationship with the Father. That's going to be a big focus of attention on this. But there's also the focus of several themes going on here. So he says, I am the light of the world. And at the end of that verse, but, but have the light of life, he says. So there's several themes. We're going to see light and life and death and life. And so we have three verses in this text of real importance for us, real application for us. Verse 12, then Jesus spoke to them again saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Verse 30 as he spoke these words, many believed in him. So we have this opening verse that we've looked at. We have this verse at the end. And then we have all this dialogue in between. And something is stirred in the hearts of some of these people. Many people, the text says. But in verse 24 is a key verse for us. It says, Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins. For if you do not believe that I am he you will die in your sins. So the picture for us, the application for us, is that we see people passing from death to life. Because we have people listening to his words. Halfway through this dialogue, he talks about how in verse 24, you will die in your sins if you don't believe. And then we see in verse 30, many did believe. So they accepted what he was saying. They were dead in their sins. Uh, but now they have new life in Christ, as it says in verse 30. They no longer will walk in darkness because they have, as we see in verse 12, the light of life. Light of life. The light of the world. Light. It's a term that's used throughout all of Scripture. It's a very important term for us. Uh, probably one of the best object lessons we have for that is that when we walk into our homes or walk in anywhere and it's dark, what's the first thing we do? Turn on the light. Hopefully. Maybe some of us don't, but we've probably learned over time that that's a safe thing to do because there's always things in the way in the house, right? And if the light's not on, you could stub your toe and that's not a good thing. So the practical application for us, though, is... Are we in a dark place? Or if you're in a dark place, let Jesus Christ himself illuminate that dark place. We can be there, can't we? We have those times when we're feeling down, we're feeling low, we're feeling burdened, overwhelmed, all these things, and we have the opportunity to just turn to Christ to let him illuminate that darkness for us. Because there is no darkness at all in Jesus Christ. He is the light of the world. He is the light of life. So here we have Jesus sharing more truth about himself. And once again, we're going to see the crowd that's there react in different ways. So we have this scene, Jesus, the light. We have the Pharisees. There's still some of those around. What do they want to do? They want to turn off the light. <laughs> they want the light to go away. And then we have the many, as we saw in verse 30, many believe the many that are actually drawn to the light. So why did Jesus say this? Why did Jesus say, I am the light of the world? 
Well, this is the second of the seven great I am statements that we see in John's gospel or that we're going to see. The I am statements, you'll see on the screen, I am the bread of life. We saw that one about a month ago in our study. I am the light of the world, the one we see tonight. We're going to see the I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. These seven I am statements, these I am statements that literally infuriated the Pharisees because they knew when Jesus was claiming to be God when he said these I am statements. It was a term that was very familiar to them because they knew all about Moses and Moses' writings. Moses, he's standing in front of the burning bush and Moses says to the Lord, well, who do I say to the people? Who do I say who sent me? And he said, tell them, I am sent you. I am that I am. I am. That's a huge statement. We saw Jesus in the garden when they came to arrest him. Are you Jesus the Christ of Nazareth? And what did he say? I am. And what happened? They fell down. He just knocked them over with that statement. And you think about it, it's, it's really not surprising, is it? It's the power of God in that one statement. I am. Boom. Knocking people down. Wouldn't it be great to have that kind of power? <laughs> I mean, that would just be amazing. Somebody giving you a hard time. I am. Pooh. Yeah, <laughs> showed you, didn't I? But we don't have that power. We don't even want to go there because we are not the I am. We have these I am statements to not only teach us who Jesus is, but to encourage us in who he is that he is who he says he is. He is the I am. He is God. And that was constantly causing the Pharisees to want to get rid of him. They saw him as a threat. So why does Jesus use this I am phrase at this time and at this place, in this place? So we know from a couple weeks ago when we looked at it, this is all taking place during or right after what is known as the Feast of the Tabernacles, the Feast of Tents, this celebration that takes place once a year. It's one of the uh, feasts that requires all the Jews to travel to Jerusalem for. And so they're there, they're going through, so there's all of these elaborate rituals and different things, some of which God had certainly commanded them to do, and some of them they just kind of made up themselves over time. But it was tradition for them to do that the people were coming Jesus is at this feast. So this is taking place after this feast. And it's taking place in what we see in verse 20 as in the temple treasury. It's an interesting phrase there for us. Because if we've never seen it before, what's the first question we ask? Well, where's that? The temple treasury, is it like the Fort Knox of the temple? I mean, is that where all of the Money is held? I mean, what, what, what is that? What is the temple treasury? What is the significance of John telling us in verse 20 that Jesus was in the treasury of the temple? Well, just a quick lesson, and you may remember, from the layout of the temple, there were six distinct areas in the temple. There was the court of the Gentiles, 
And that was the area really that was outside of the temple because only Jews were allowed to go in. So the area on the outside of the temple was called the Court of the Gentiles, and they weren't allowed to go in. They could just hang out out there, but they weren't allowed to cross in into uh, the, the temple itself. So we have the Court of the Gentiles, and then the next step would be the Court of the Women, is what it was called. And that's as far as even the Jewish women could go. They could go into the Court of Women, but they weren't allowed to proceed any farther than that kind of sounds not fair, right ladies? What's up with that? And you'd have to be wondering, I wonder what goes on in there? You know, bugging their husbands. What, what do you guys do in there? You know, and how come we can't go in? By law, that was all the, as far as they could go. They weren't allowed to go any farther. So there was the court of the women, only for the Jewish women. And then there was the court of Israel, basically the court of the Jewish men. It was the next step that you went into. This is still inside the walls, and they're not actually at what we know of as the temple, but they're in the temple uh, mount area there. So the court of Israel, this is the area that, that the Jewish men could go into. Then next was the court of priests, and that's where all the sacrifices took place. So it's very interesting as you look at it because you think, well, the men have just stepped into the area where all the sacrifices were taking place. But it was kind of an area of observance so they could see what was going on. They actually couldn't go in and participate in that. Only the priests were allowed to do that. So this court of the priests, and then there was the holy place. And we know that as you walked into the temple, that's where the uh, menorah was, the table of showbread, uh, the altar of incense, those things were in place there. The priests actually went in and did their duties inside that place. And behind that, behind the curtain, was the Holy of Holies. And the priest was only able, just one priest, once a year, could go into that, into that place. So that's kind of the layout. You see this uh, hierarchical structure that takes place in order to, to get into there. You know, so um, it, it's, to me, I, I look at it and I think it's kind of sad because um, the Gentiles which in that day would have been us. Are there any Jewish people here tonight? Oh, we got one. Well then, let's talk. No. <laughs> so, but most of us, we would be clear on the outside. We wouldn't get to see anything really that was going on at all, would we? Because we weren't one of the Israelites. And then there's this court of women. Like I said, they're not allowed to go much farther court of men. We, so we see this whole thing. So the court of the Gentiles, that area basically on the outside, and anyone male or female that wasn't of Jewish descent couldn't go any further than that. So the court of the women, for the most part, is self-explanatory. It's a place for the ladies to hang out. You know, So uh, Jewish women could only go so far into that. But getting back to our text, this area was also called the treasury. The court of the women was also known as the treasury because this is the area where offering boxes were located. In this area, there were 13 trumpet-shaped boxes for monetary offerings. And each one had a special significance for giving and offerings. We're not going to go into that in any depth tonight because it just kind of goes on and on. But there were certain ones for certain things. But basically, it was 13 places for money to go into. Now I was looking at our new sanctuary today. I was kind of thinking, man, we could probably get at least 11 
you know, in here. Um, I don't know. What do you guys think? You know, just kind of stay in keeping with this whole thing. We won't have a court of women. You know, ladies, we'll let you be right in there with the men, <laughs> as it should be, obviously, right? But this court of women was also the place where people brought their offerings and they gave monetarily to the temple for all sorts of different things, for wood, for doves, for, it was just all sorts of things. So that's why it was termed as the treasury. But the other prominent feature of the temple treasury or this area of the court of the women is like what we talked about a, a couple weeks ago. There were these four pillars with these large lampstands up on top of them. And during this Feast of Tents, Feast of Tabernacles, these lampstands were filled with oil. Each one of them held, uh, it was four branches off of these, and each one of those branches had a bowl, and each one of those bowls held 65 gallons of oil. So remember when we talked about a couple weeks ago that when those things when they lit those things on that one night in the Feast of the Tabernacles, the whole Temple Mount area was just aglow. And you could see it from miles and miles away. Well, you can understand that, given that. So these towers were in place, four of them, and they would have been lit. Scholars go back and forth on this. Some of them say that it was the night before the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles, and some of them say, no, it was just the last day I don't have any idea. I don't know that it really matters a whole lot. But anyway, on one of those nights, they lit these things, and it was called the illumination of the temple. And so there was a purpose for that. It was part of the Feast of Tabernacles celebration, and this glow, this light went for miles and miles. Now think about this. This is the location where Jesus makes his second I am statement. I am the light of the world. And I almost picture it this way. I'm going to take a little bit of creative liberty here. He could have been standing in the very shadow of one of these things while he was teaching or sitting there during the day. And they would have just taken part in this celebration, the Feast of the Tabernacles. And these lights, you know, I, I would think it would be something to just be fresh in your mind. I, I don't know what we have that's close to that. Maybe Fourth of July, the fireworks displays, you know, ooh and awe times, looking at those. And if they're great, that's, that's great. And you may share that with someone saying, yeah, we went to this place or that place. We saw the firework display. It was wonderful. Still fresh in, our, in your minds, you know, that you're sharing that. Imagine this scene, being in the city and just seeing this Temple Mount just glowing from these lights. That's something that would stick in your minds. Now, here are these people. They're sitting with Jesus and the teaching is going on. And what's he say? I am the light of the world. And it would have to make them think back to that thing that they just experienced during the feast. I am the light of the world. So this celebration, the Feast of Tabernacles was over. They're in this court of women, in the treasury, in the place where these towers with the lampstands were lit. And we have Jesus teaching there. And he says, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Now, any of the Pharisees that were there, any of those that had studied the law, knew the law of Moses, and had read prophecies concerning the Messiah, which they had, 
this would ring a bell with them. This would stand out for them. Because in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2, it says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. And then in Isaiah chapter 60, verse 1, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon you. They knew by his I am statement of being the light of the world that he was claiming deity. He was claiming to be God. Because light, the term light, the word light and what it meant was a title reserved for God and God alone. Psalm 27.1 says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Isaiah 60 verse 19 says, The sun shall no longer be your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give light to you, but the Lord will be to you an everlasting light, and your God your glory. So you can see in these verses already, it's making that connection between God and light. Job 29.3, When his lamp shone upon my head, and when by his light I walked through darkness. Micah 7.8, The Lord will be a light to me. And then Psalm 119, 105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. God is light. The light is referred to as the Shekinah glory of God. God's God's presence, God is with us. We know that from the Old Testament, the Shekinah glory of God. We remember that. God was revealed to the Israelites as they were leaving Egypt in a cloud by day and a fire by night. He was the original guiding light. Not the soap opera that maybe some of you are familiar with. The guy like sands through the hourglass. No, that was the days of our lives, wasn't it? I'm sorry. I got my soap operas all mixed up. What was I thinking? But there was the guiding light. God was the original, the only guiding light. A pillar of cloud by day, and a pillar of fire by night. In Exodus chapter 14, we see that this pillar of cloud moved in front of them during the day to show them where to go. Then the same thing at night. It was a cloud of fire for them as well. But we also see in Exodus chapter 14 that it moved behind them to form a barrier from the Egyptians who were in pursuit. The cloud moved behind them during the day and just formed this wall, this cloud that they couldn't get through and then at night it was the pillar of fire again but this time it was different because the text tells us for it was a cloud of darkness on the Egyptian side and a cloud of fire or light on the Israelite side. I had never really seen that before. That really was amazing to me. I hadn't seen that picture of the Egyptians who were in pursuit of God's people they were stopped literally by darkness. And on the other side of this was light. It was the Shekinah glory of God. It was the light of God there for the uh, Israelites. So it kept the Egyptians from advancing towards them. So God was not only their light, He was also their protector as well. So during the Feast of Tabernacles itself, these tall towers that we talked about, with its lamps ablaze at night, illuminating the temple, they were proclaiming God to be 
their light, their guidance, their, their deliverer, their light, their protector. That's how they recognized him. That for them, that scene of that, those lamps ablaze in the night were a picture for them of how God delivered them, guided them, protected them through the wilderness with his pillar of fire. So the Pharisees knew what Jesus was claiming. Jesus has taught on it before. We saw back in John chapter 3. Uh, turn over there real quickly. John chapter 3, verse 19. We know this story as we went through it. This was the original Nick at night. It was when Jesus met with Nicodemus. Verse 19 Jesus says, and this is the condemnation that the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. So back to John chapter 8, we see in verse 13, the Pharisees therefore said to him, you bear witness of yourself, your witness is not true. So they've heard all of this about light, and they don't believe Jesus, do they? And they're saying, your witness is not true, you're calling yourself the light, you're calling yourself the I am, you're calling yourself God himself, and your witness is not true, we don't believe it. The law was always their defense mechanism. That's not necessarily a bad thing, but they just had a habit of using it in the wrong context, especially when it came to Jesus. And I find that this is interesting, this happening right on the heels of the scene with the woman caught in adultery. They caught her in the very act. They had witnesses. And we saw how Jesus schooled them in that situation. So now they challenge him on his witnesses. You're just making claims about yourself with nothing to back it up, is basically what they're saying. Who else confirms what you say? You say you're the light of the world? Prove it. Well, in verse 14, Jesus starts this. Jesus answered and said to them, Even if I bear witness of myself, my witness is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from and where I am going. You judge according to the flesh, I judge no one. And yet if I do judge, my judgment is true, for I am not alone, but I am with the Father who sent me. It is also written in your law that the testimony of two men is true. I am one who bears witness of myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness of me. Then they said to him, Where is your Father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. These words Jesus spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, and no one laid hands on him, for his hour had not yet come. For his hour had not yet come. We've seen that pop up several times, haven't we? It's just not time for them to take Jesus and arrest him and crucify him. Time has not come yet, so it's not happening. So you have another witness. You say your father as a witness. Where is he? Jesus said, you don't know me or my father. Now, that had to hurt a little bit because Jesus is saying, you don't know me 
Therefore, you don't know God. So, <laughs> you don't know God, you don't know me. That had to hurt. That had to make them incense, to say the least. Can you imagine sitting in a courtroom with an individual that's on trial and the defense calls its key witness? The defense calls God to the witness stand. Now that's what this scene would have been like. Jesus was saying, God is my witness. My Father is my witness. You might, some of you remember the 1977 movie, Oh God. You remember that, that uh, George Burns starred in? There is a scene where Burns, as God, is called to the witness stand. Do you remember that? And is asked, as all witnesses are, do you solemnly swear or affirm that you would tell the truth? the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God. And George Burns, as God's statement was, so help me, me. (laughs) Well, God himself could say that. He could make that statement, couldn't he? Jesus could make that statement because he is God. Jesus was saying, I have God himself as my witness. The Father is my witness. I am God himself as my witness. Now we use that phrase sometimes, don't we? We know when we're telling the truth about something, we say, God is my witness. Now that's a phrase that we need to be careful with, isn't it? If we're going to call upon the name of God as our witness, we better be telling the truth. We better be standing firm on truth when we use that. What we forget sometimes is that God, (laughs) God's always our witness, isn't he? (laughs) He always knows what we're doing or saying when we are representing the truth or misrepresenting the truth. Um, (laughs) Growing up, my mom was always saying to me, James? She always called me James when I was in trouble. She called me James a lot. (laughs) James, remember... God is watching. You know, like, sometimes I didn't really think about that, and other times it really kind of freaked me out. Because you think about God is watching. He's always watching. God is watching over you. But it does drive us, knowing that fact, to want to represent God well, doesn't it? God's always watching. He's always there. He knows what we're doing. He knows what we're up to. And Jesus always... 100% of the time represented the Father accurately because they were, they they are one. Jesus never misrepresented God. Everything that Jesus said was truth and he represented God 100% correctly all the time because he was God. Now the Pharisees knew very well what he was claiming But nothing was done about it at this time, because we saw in verse 20, his hour had not yet come. Verse 21, Then Jesus said to them again, I am going away, and you will seek me, and will die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. So the Jews said, Will he kill himself? Because he said, Where I go, you cannot come. And he said to them, You are from beneath, I am from above. You are of this world I am not of this world. Therefore I, therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins, for if you do not believe that I am He, 
you will die in your sins. You know, now I read that, I suppose you guys as you're looking at it, that just makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, it's, it's pretty clear. Don't believe in me, you're going to die in your sins. Do believe in me and you won't die in your sins. It, so the challenge to them, to us, is this. He's saying, I'm not from this world. I am from God. God sent me. I'm the Messiah that you've been waiting for. I am the chosen one, the Holy One of Israel. I am God. If you don't believe this, if you don't believe in me, what? You will die in your sins. Now physically, we know that without the Son, S-U-N, we'll die, right? The Son is in place to keep us alive physically. S-U-N, to keep us alive. Spiritually, the same rule applies. The Son, S-O-N, if we don't have the Son, we'll die in sin. Then they said to them, Who are you? And Jesus said to them, Just what I have been saying to you from the beginning. Now, I think it's an interesting question that they're asking. It's either an attempt to get him to say, I am God, which I think he's made that pretty clear to him already because he's made two of these I am statements that upset him uh, pretty good. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. Or they were just totally baffled by his claims, his teachings. You know, you're saying hard things. You're difficult to understand. Who who are you? Who are you really? And in 26, he says, I have many things to say and to judge concerning you, but he who sent me is true, and I speak to the world those things which I heard from him. They didn't understand that he spoke to them of the Father. You don't understand? Well, just believe what I say. Jesus is saying to them in verse 28, Then Jesus said to them, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He and that I do nothing of myself. But as my Father taught me, I speak these things. And He who sent me is with me. The Father has not left me alone, for I always do those things that please Him. Remember in the conversation with Nicodemus, chapter 3, we looked at just a minute ago. Turn there again, chapter 3. We're going to read a couple verses before the before that, starting at verse 11. John chapter 3, verse 11. Jesus says, Most assuredly, I say to you, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. Verse 12. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, then how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended to heaven but he who came down from heaven, that is, the Son of Man who is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. So Jesus has made these statements before, hasn't he? He told these very things to Nicodemus. Now, the good Jew that Nicodemus was, what do you think he did? I believe he went right back to the other Jewish leaders, the other Pharisees, and told them of his experience and what Jesus said. Because we actually see Nicodemus come into Jesus' defense. The end of chapter 7, we saw that there. Uh, he said uh, uh, in chapter 7, 
Verse 51, does our law judge a man before it hears him and knows what he's doing? I can't say for a fact that Nicodemus was a believer at that time. I think he was really close. (laughs) I really do. And so if he had gone back and told the other Pharisees of his conversation with Jesus at night, they have heard these things before as well about Jesus and from Jesus. So we see in verse 30 at the end of our text tonight, chapter 8, as he spoke these words, many believed in him. Remember when we saw that verse in Psalms 119, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. It's speaking about God's very word, who Jesus was. We covered that pretty thoroughly in John chapter 1. He was the word, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He was the word. As Jesus spoke these words, when the word of God was speaking the words of God, many believed in him. We know that to be true in our own lives because as we read his word, as his word is shared with us, as those that proclaim his word and challenge us to believe his word, that's how we came to the Lord, didn't we? Many of us believed in him because of his words. So we've seen before that many believe. Many believe because of the signs and the miracles. Here, many believe because of what? Because of his words They didn't even have to wait for his lifting up, his crucifixion. They believed what he said. They believed who he said he was so that they would not die in their sins. They had to believe. We we have to believe. We've made that decision, most all of us here, I, I assume. So we know what he's talking about. We're on this side of the cross, and we know and we understand the words of Christ, the claims of Christ, and what they mean in our lives. We believe Him. Some of these believed in Him as well. They had to because they didn't want to die in their sins. Amen?